Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome back to Outward, Slate's LGBTQ podcast. I'm Brandon Tensley, the associate editor at New America and a contributing writer at Pacific Standard Magazine. And I'm bewitched by Tilda Swinton and masculine drag in Suspiria, which I've now devoured twice in the past week. (laughs) Mm. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of The Waves, Slate's podcast about women and gender. And this season, I am thankful for hot toddies and legal weed. Mm. Mm -hmm. And I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and I'm still shook from election night. Could not believe (laughs) how shady Nancy Pelosi's grandchild was being to her on stage. (laughs) Did y'all see those eyes rolling? Yeah, they were. It actually looked kind of out of place to me. I didn't realize who those two children were, just sort of like watching the telephone on mute. It was like all of these old ass uh, members of Congress and then these children. No, the one in the front was just really giving it to her. It was was hard to pay attention to our (laughs) our, our presumptive speaker. But uh, (laughs) anyway. (laughs) Future Republican. Yeah. So it's November, Mm -hmm. that time of year when we're slowly, reluctantly awakening from our Halloween candy comas and preparing for the holidays. For lots of folks, that probably means preparing to spend lots and lots of time with their families. But we here at Outward have to ask with the side of gay sass, what is family really? What are its possibilities? On this month's episode, we're going to challenge the prevailing cultural expectations that exist around family by talking about chosen families, those social units that many queer people put together out of necessity. We'll play a game to suss out if some of our favorite fictional figures are queer family before diving into how we cobble together our own chosen families. Then we'll chat with Mark Joseph Stern about the legal aspects of family and what all that means for queers today before wrapping up with the gay agenda. Yay. But first... Christina, for the love of all that is queer and seasonally layered and holy, lead us in another round of Pride and Provocations, please. (laughs) I'm going to start with a pride that I really hope no one else picked. So we're taping this just after the midterm elections. And I want to say that I have so much pride in Sharice David's the recently elected congresswoman-elect from Kansas. Mm -hmm. She is the first openly gay member of Congress from Kansas. She Mm -hmm. is one of the first Native American women elected to Congress. The other happened to be elected the same night. She was a professional mixed martial arts fighter and has incredible muscles, which is, you know, important, a nice to have, (laughs) not a need to have, I would say, for a member of Congress. I'm not going to hate on her for it. It's It's pretty fine. She won by more than nine points. She ousted a four-term incumbent Republican. So let's listen from a little clip of this ad where, uh, just to paint a picture for our listeners out there, she is like uh, shadow boxing in a gym. Truth is, I've had to fight my whole life because of who I am, who I love, and where I started. But I didn't let anything get in my way. Still, 
It's 2018, and women, Native Americans, gay people, the unemployed and underemployed have to fight like hell just to survive. Um, she's just a total badass and love to have a lesbian in Congress. God, that sounds amazing. We should get her on the show. Yeah, we should. Brandon, what do you have for us? So I'm probably like a month late to this, but I recently saw an absolutely loved Colette. Has anyone seen it yet? No. I have not, no. Okay. But uh, I remember drooling over the trailer yes. a couple months ago. I love the poster for it as well. Yeah. Um, it's this like fiery red and purple magenta thing with uh, Keir Knightley. But it's Wash Westmoreland's new film starring Keir Knightley as the titular Colette as a French novelist. So the movie is based on a true story, and it's basically about Colette finding her voice. Um, and so the sort of the main conflict is set into motion when uh, Colette starts ghostwriting for her husband, Willie, played by Dominic West. And he, you know, increasingly becomes this person who's just lecherous and expensive and wasteful, um, you know, doing what men often do um, and just squandering <laughs> um, a lot of what uh, Colette is trying to do. To me, what makes the movie so fabulous and interesting um, is the way that it deals with performance on a bunch of different levels. And so on the one hand, we have Colette performing for her husband when she writes his novels. Colette performs fendisiacal masculinity by wearing what was considered uh, more masculine clothing at the time, uh, which coincides with her relationship with Missy, uh, who uses male pronouns. And then Colette also performs quite literally when she joins the sort of free love libertine uh, theater group. Mm. Um, and so to me, it's just a movie that's deeply and very tenderly um, about gender and sexuality, uh, both how we feel those identities, but also how we try to communicate and wear them. Oh, now I really need to see it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's so good. And, you know, my partner will tell you that I'm I don't necessarily jump um, at the opportunity to see period dramas, mainly because I'm uncouth. Um, but I, I absolutely loved Colette. Uh, and at the end, I was just like, oh, my God, like I would give 15 more dollars to see this movie wow. again. So definitely should see it. Brian, what do you have for us? So I have a uh, election-themed pride as well, although it was one that started in provocation. Um, I don't know if y'all were on Instagram or really social media in general on election day, but a lot of our uh, gay, LGBT, Insta thirst traps, let's say, or thoughts, some people say, (laughs) were out here with their shirts off and whatnot, getting us out to vote. So a lot of people were were, were naked with I voted stickers or like, <laughs> I've got your attention now with my abs. Like, you should go vote. And this this did provoke me a little bit at first. I felt like it was kind of a strange um, mixture of, of uh, politics and like desire or something. But I think actually I've come around to, think, to being proud of it, to thinking it was a good thing. Part of that was uh, because uh, one of our colleagues, Heather Schwedel, wrote a piece defending it and saying sort of that everything is content these days, so why couldn't this be? But I figure I, if you've worked hard on your body and that's like your brand and that's the thing you're doing uh, on social media, why not use it for the betterment of the democracy? Um, I think that's probably, all things being equal, like a worthwhile pursuit. So proud of y'all out there for for voting and for uh, you know making us all thirsty enough to go vote too. He's yeah. in the abs for the cause. I, I like wonder that. if there's a way to even take that one step further and have these Instagram hotties like raffle off the opportunity to be driven to the polls by oh. them Ooh. in the back of their Vespa or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah. It's an idea for 2020. Anyone's welcome to take it. <laughs> for sure. Love it. All right. Next, we have a game. 
I always love a game. Brian, what are we doing today? So uh, we do have a game. One of my favorite bits of gay lingo has always been actually family, uh, the word family. And in, in this sense, uh, what it means is sort of a, almost like a code word where you would be like, say, at a party um, and look across the room and see like a cutie and you weren't sure if they were, were you know, gay or not, queer or not. And so you would talk to your, look at your friend and say, oh, do you think he's family? Over there, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's the meaning we're talking about. Um, and so to get into our discussion of queer family today, uh, we're going to play a game based on this. It's called Is She Family? Uh, <laughs> and I'm excited to say that our sapphic lodestar, June Thomas, is joining us again for another game. Hello, yeah. June. Hello, Hi, my friends. Hello, my children. <laughs> Your family. Your family. So the object of the game is, is pretty simple. Um, we've each brought a fictional character, because um, it's not nice to speculate about real people's <laughs> uh, sexualities. But fictional people are totally in bounds. We think they could be family, right? And we're going to work out whether it's true together. So we're basically going to sort of debate it um, as, as a group. Um, so June, and then yes. we're going to eventually come to a totally yes. like canon decision yeah. mm-hmm. that can never be repealed. Change the Wikipedia. Cannot be right. changed. <laughs> Immediately update all the references. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so let's actually start with our guest, June. Who are we trying to clock first? Well, okay. I want to talk about Blanche Dubois Ooh. from the Tennessee Williams movie, <laughs> from, the tel- <laughs> from the Tennessee Williams play, A Streetcar Named Desire. And... The reason this came into my head is that a lot of people, when they realized, which was surely not like a great piece of detective work, that Tennessee Williams was gay, there was a, a kind of a, 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 people were saying, yeah, but you know, his female characters, they're just really gay characters. And it's always struck me that this was deeply homophobic because what they were saying, like, let's just take Blanche Dubois as an example, that this character was neurotic, that this character was narcissistic, that this character was really sensitive about aging and just obsessed with the way that they looked, uh, that they were promiscuous, that they were kind of self, just completely self-locked up in themselves, that they were ultimately mentally ill. I mean, where is the lie? (laughs) (laughs) And I like, but at the same time, I also see like where that's coming from. So although it's both a deeply homophobic and kind of rests on a lot of stereotypes, there is also something to like Blanche Dubois is can totally be read as a gay man of a certain period. Of a certain period. And I think I think it's also fair to say that some of those, not all of those traits, but some of those traits are ones that we could like, recl- it depends on how you look at them, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, I, I think narcissism maybe gets a bad rap. Uh, and so... Yeah, I, I think it's uh, I think it's totally I would vote yes mm-hmm. that that she has family in that regard. I agree with you, Brian. I think narcissism among marginalized communities is an act of resistance. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I also think, you know, what could be read as a concern with aging could also be seen as queer agelessness Mm -hmm. in that, you know, people in their 60s are still going out partying and, you know, people are having kids at all sorts of ages. And uh, that is one thing I love about queer people. I feel like we have different milestones. We, you know, often achieve different, quote unquote, life milestones at different ages um, or do away with those traditional milestones altogether. I will say that characters like Blanche Dubois uh, 
strike me also as possibly queer women in this sort of like flouncy, dramatic, like high femme sort of way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll also note that many of the things, although I can agree completely with you about your your view of narcissism, we're never going to get uh, writers who often are forced, forced, I say, to write first person essays to say that there's anything wrong with narcissism. <laughs> <laughs> so true. All right, fair. <laughs> and Christina, I think what you're saying about, um, you know, this being uh, a particular portrayal of uh, queerness, especially for women, you know, I think my, for me, the portrayal, the image of Blanche Dubois is Vivian Lee, right? Mm, and so somebody mm-hmm. who. Um, was known and in a lot of ways hampered for being just so beautiful in terms of not being taken as seriously as her male counterparts um, in acting. Um, But somebody who I think in a lot of ways sort of embodies those sorts of uh, traits of a lot of other queer icons that people might have today, Um, you know, straight women, but who also double as these queer icons in various ways, in part because of these relationships that they build with audiences over time uh, when it comes to being marginalized in particular ways. And so I also 100% think, you know, queer, queer as fuck. <laughs> yeah. Wow, very little disagreement there. Yeah, I just want to add, too, that for, for a lesser-known example of this, also by Tennessee Williams, also Vivian Lee, people should check out The Roman Spring of Mrs. Stone. It's a, it's a movie um, uh, that you can go—it's a novel first, but, it, but, uh, but a movie that you can go get on, online. And uh, it, is, it is a gay male story, if I've ever seen one, but, like, done in, done in uh, the same kind of drag. So v- very good. Um, let's go to Brandon for the next uh, proposal. Okay, so my character is from one of my absolute favorite movies, Missy from Bring It On. Oh, wow. <laughs> Are we familiar? Are we familiar? Yeah. So Eliza Dushku. Well, give us your case first. Yeah, yeah. I forget exactly. I was a big Eliza Dushku fan back in the day, but I can't quite remember what that character was about. Yeah. So Missy in the movie is uh, the outsider, right? And so, like when they're uh, when she's auditioning, uh, her what I feel like has become um, iconic. Her cheer is. Can she yell? We'll try and I'll do. Awesome! Oh wow! Like totally freak me out, I'd be right on! The tour, sure, number one. I transferred from Los Angeles. Your school has no gymnastics team. This is a last resort. And so like I'm I'm less interested in sort of the the homophobia that's tossed around by our classmates. So for instance, during that tryout scene, uh, you know, they say, oh, like Missy is an Uber dyke. Later on, they say that she's a big dykey loser. But what I am interested in is the sort of queer sensibility around Missy. So like like I said, she's this outsider. She's somebody who's trying to fit in. When uh, Torrance, Kirsten Dunst, uh, her character, uh, goes to try to recruit Missy, she says, you know, tries to calm her by saying, like, they reject the unfamiliar. Um, and so it's this, uh, you know, person who's moving to a new city, moving to, moving to a new school and trying to in keeping with today's theme, build her own family. Mm -hmm. So trying to eke out this family and, you know, the place that she's choosing, the location she's choosing is this cheer squad. In addition to that, I feel like she's a very sexless character in, in, you know, in comparison to her peers in the movie, right? Like it's a bunch of horny high schoolers. Um, But throughout the movie, she's very sort of, you know, we never get that sort of engagement with Missy. She's always trying to help other people with their problems. But, you know, that never comes back around to like what Missy wants, Missy's own desires. And so I, I think wow. she's pretty queer. I feel like you just wrote a dissertation. <laughs> yeah. I also um, watched the movie again last night uh, just so I could get some of the quotes right. But 
I just pulled up a clip of her from when she's coming in for her cheerleading mm-hmm. tryouts, and I automatically need to say that, yes, she's family. She's wearing a carabiner. Oh. I'm like zooming on it, like dangling Cinema. from her right, belt loop. Right, because she throws it off before she mm-hmm. does her um, her first like performance. Yeah, And then oh, she, yeah. I guess I, I listen to it silently because we're in the recording studio, but I guess they insult her or something, and she licks her middle finger mm-hmm. in such a way that I feel like if one of the hetero characters had done it, it would have been sort of like a phallic, phallatic mm-hmm. movement. <laughs> but she kind phallic of moves it side to side in a way that name. like made me feel weird inside <laughs> and so uh, i'm gonna say 100 percent family i i I'm, I'm having a little trouble remembering the exact contours of her character and uh, how it how she is involved in the movie but from your descriptions it seems first of all yes 100 very clear hundo p as the kids say but <laughs> um i also like it strikes me too that there's this is one of those cases where so often um we have to decode like just really you know i just remember always as a kid reading horoscopes and every time it saw you know someone from the opposite sex i would just immediately know that well okay i may i need to read that in this different way and that in this cat missy in bring it on it's like your description brandon is so clear and yet there's not even a lot of code switching required like it's almost there they've almost Mm -hmm. made her canon lesbian and yet not yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The Carabiner is always always a pretty hard, uh, pretty hard yes. Let's uh, go to Christina. Who did you bring for us? I have. This might seem really obvious, but I really need some validation here. Mulan, mm. my favorite Disney Ooh. movie heroine. Um, first of all, she's way too good at drag to be straight, <laughs> in my opinion. And then, more importantly, the guy who she falls in love with. Lee Shang always kind of seemed like a butch daddy to me and like they're making eyes at each other even when she's dressed as a dude so like he's kind of gay but also he like has this man bun and sort of like some feminine it it looks like he's like performing both masculinity and femininity when he takes his shirt off and swings his stick around I feel like that's (laughs) him the whole scene with the picking up the stick to me felt very much like you know claiming a non-biological phallus. So I think Mulan is an incredibly queer story and that both Mulan and her love interest are either pansexual or gay. Yeah, I don't want to turn this into like an amen corner, but like I am totally sold on that. (laughs) (laughs) I never thought about it in those ways, but also like would you say that they're more sort of like each other's like beards in this sense? Um, There's no sort of... You know, we wouldn't want to see like necessarily any sort of desire between them, but something that helps the other sort of come into their own sort of being and identity and things like that. Yeah, watch Mulan again. That's definitely possible. But I was also thinking that maybe Lee is trans or Mm. transmasculine in some sort of way. That's how I choose to watch the movie anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I really want to rewatch it now. I, I mean, I remember being very attracted to that character um, Mm -hmm. uh, early in my life, but uh, I I had not thought about Mulan in particular. That's great. So, Brian, who is your character? So, I would like us to consider the devil himself. (gasps) The devil. Whoa. Beelzebub? Uh, Beelzebub, Lucifer, all of it. Um, Yeah, I, I, so I, 
ever since uh, having read Paradise Lost in college, like you do, um, have felt like the devil, Satan, uh, at least as represented there, is queer. I think the way that he rejects sort of typical authority figures, the way that he um, you know, goes out on his own and creates his own sort of uh, community and family in certain ways, certainly, or kicked out, I should say, kicked out of his, of his home. Um, the, the sort of, sort of just like sensibility that, that he has in that, uh, in that poem feels very queer to me. And I think you see that like echoed in more recent uh, representations like uh, the Sabrina reboot that's going on now a little bit, but even more so in um, American Horror Story uh, um, Apocalypse, which is uh, you don't see Satan himself, but you see his the Antichrist, who's sort of the embodiment, um, and is a very queer character. So I wonder if you guys agree that that uh, the devil himself is is family. Wow. wow! First of all, I take issue with you calling the devil himself a fictional character. <laughs> <laughs> No, just kidding. That actually tracks with what I think is the biblical imagination of the devil, too, which is that he slash she slash they is a fallen angel. Mm-hmm, right. And if we think mm. of, you know, if we take whatever the like modern conservative Christian interpretation of God is that like someone who's gonna, about to punish gay people for being gay or like doesn't want people to have sex and all this other stuff, um, which, you know, may or may not be true, then it would make sense that the devil would be, you know, somebody who transgressed the most sacred boundaries in heaven and was and sort of rebelled against that or or was cast out because of that. Yeah. And I feel like it also makes sense if you think of it in terms of, um, you know, about the devil and hell being less about sort of punishment and so more sort of about greed and sensation and desire mm. and being able to just revel in those things. Um, I feel like I, one of my teachers in high school, I think, said something about, like, very controversial, virtually, um, <laughs> in South Carolina. Um, but, like, you know, you're not punished um, in hell, but it's something where you get to, like, live out your sort of, like, fantasies and desires and things like that. <laughs> oh wow, God, that's amazing. That. <laughs> is that <laughs> person I think we should, yeah, debate whether that teacher is family or not. That's amazing. <laughs> Um, That's like dare when they try to get you to not do drugs, but they make drugs sound really good. They're like ecstasy makes you like all your sensations heightened and you just love the world. Not ever do it. Well, because I think his thing was just like, you know, like, why will the devil, why would he punish you for doing things that you like enjoyed and things that didn't seem like they were in keeping with sort of uh, moral and cultural pieties, right? Like he would try to reward you for those sorts of things. Right. And so, you know, I... In a more adjacent way, I can see it fitting into that, but I definitely had not thought of that in part because I have not read Paradise Lost. Highly <laughs> recommend it. It's it's uh, it's it's actually a lot more fun than you might think a like epic poem would be. Um, very recommended. <laughs> yeah, I, I want. I just don't know. You know, it's 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 uh, perhaps it's playing into the conservatives' hands to claim the devil as queer family, but yeah. uh, I think I'm willing to to go there. Well, and sometimes like it's not only you choose your own family, but your family is chosen for you because people mm. keep you know, pushing you, you know, it's like when people say you can't have this, you can't have this. You're like, you know, it's all right. I didn't want it anyway. And if they don't want us to have Jesus, well, you know, we'll take the other route. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm so happy to have discovered so many new family members. (laughs) Uh, I'm excited to go watch some of those movies and revisit some of that stuff and get familiar with them. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Speaking of discovering new family, in the next segment, we're going to talk about our chosen families and how we form them and how they're made up and what they look like. So, Brandon, uh, take us to that. Right. So, chosen families, we've talked about them in a fun, fictional fashion. But as Brian said, let's talk about some of ours. Christina, tell us a bit about the special way you've made family. Aw. I definitely consider my various and intersecting friend groups my chosen family. Obviously, the the idea of chosen family in a queer sense and the idea, I think, behind, you know, the is she family sort of thing is that a lot of times queer people don't have the support and kinship with their biological families that a lot of straight people do or most straight people do. I wouldn't say that's the case with me. I definitely love my family and have their support. And, you know, it's I think a lot of times queer people have built chosen family to take care of each other in hospitals or in times of financial and emotional hardship in a dish, in a way that in straight communities, maybe biological family would be involved in. But I do think that there's something to the fact that unless you have queer parents, you don't learn queerness from your family. So you have to learn it elsewhere. I don't have any openly gay members of my family or or openly LGBT at all. And I have a very big family. I think 80 so or so members of my family, and I'm the only openly gay wow. one. That's wild. So, yeah. I mean, statistically, there has to be someone <laughs> yeah, else, right? Somebody. I still do have some younger cousins. Mm. I hope they're not listening to this. But I'm like, you know, hoping that maybe somebody will come out, you know, after they get into college or out of college or something. Um, but... Yeah, so it's it's been important for me to have those bonds outside of my family where I feel like I can really invest in queer community and queer culture because, I mean, no matter how much support you have and love you have for your biological family, there is still, uh, unless, again, you, you're a queer spawn or something, you don't have that sort of an immediate into that culture. I also think about, you know, my ancestral roots to like, Italy and stuff like that and things that I might feel more excited about if I were straight. When I think about my ancestors, I kind of like my biological ancestors. I'm like, they would hate me, you know, <laughs> I just because of the time they grew mm-hmm. up in and the culture that they grew up in. And so it's it's more exciting for me to think about my queer ancestors in that sense. Yeah, I was when we were when I was thinking about this uh, segment, like one thing that quickly jumped to mind was what you just said, which is that like, like for me, I mean, there, there are like the friend groups that you can identify as like your sort of the people in your chosen family. But in a broader sense, it's like queerness as like an ethnicity that comes in in, to replace like the 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 biological one so for for you like an italian heritage or whatever i don't know what i think mine's like scotch irish which is who cares um (laughs) but but uh but yeah it's like when i think of my ancestors or my lineage or my heritage 
it's from gay people. It's not from not from my my biological family so much. Um, you know, they certainly gave me a lot of great things in life. Uh, my parents did, and my grandparents. But um, I don't like what's f- first and foremost in my mind when I think about kind of who I am or, or or who you know who I look to for how to make my way in life. It's it's often it's like queer people who have no blood relation to me, uh, but who who. Um, nonetheless feel like my real uh, ancestors. Um, and not all queer people feel that way, right? I think that's a big debate as to whether like queerness should be seen as some sort of quasi-ethnicity or whether it's just like this, you know, small part of you sexuality thing or whatever or gender thing. But um, but yeah, that's that's kind of huge to me actually in my life. Yeah, like I, I would say I'm the same and in a lot of ways, like Christina, what you said is um, what I was thinking about um, in preparation for this segment. But for me, a lot of it was the acculturation aspect of queerness. Um, so like for me, I came out in college, but was very reluctant to sort of get involved in any queer community. Just you mm. know, being in South Carolina, that was a super fast way to get clocked. Um, <laughs> and I didn't want that. Um, and so by the time I actually started like going to LGBT things and events and parties and whatever, I was in grad school. And so a lot of uh, my queer friends at that point were, you know, a lot of them had been out for years and years. Um, and so they kind of took me in as, you know, oh, we got to like help this dude out. Like we got to, <laughs> you know, teach him the ropes, show him the ropes, teach him the culture. And so that for me was, uh, that was a huge part of, you know, coming out or, you know, not only coming out, but being out and um, learning how to navigate the culture, like in my early 20s, you know, this played out in important ways and also in fun ways. So I remember, you know, there were like five of us one time. We, I was in grad school in the UK, and we hopped on a bus and went to London to go to a Carly Rae Jepsen concert. Oh. Um, and beforehand, we went to like the Soho area of the city to go to like the nice one of the gay neighborhoods, um, just get a bunch of drinks, and then just like spent all night just like dancing. And you know, Carly Rae uh, Jepsen was performing at Heaven. This, oh my god! Wow, yeah, like this gargantuan um, gay nightclub, sort of nestled under these train tracks. And so that was such a, you know, fundamental part or has become such a fundamental part of uh, my own queer identity. Um, And these same people, you know, I lived with one of them my second year of grad school. She's, you know, Irish lesbian. Um, And so, like, you know, we had a lot of different sort of cultural attachments and engagements with queerness. Um, So that was something that we both sort of like worked through uh, together. But then also I met my current partner through this queer family. Um, And so, you know, there were the fun aspects of it, the acculturation aspects of it. But then it's also the, uh, you know, what I see as like the the long lasting sort of bonds uh, that have been created around it as well. Yeah. Another thing that I was thinking about was the role of Mm ex-partners and ex-lovers in Chosen Family. I think this is... um, a not exclusively, but pretty strongly queer-specific thing. I can think of only a handful of straight people I know who have stayed friends with their exes and whose current partners are friends with their exes. But I know, like, I, my exes, my queer exes are still a big part of my life in a lot of cases. My partners, too. We went to uh, her exes slash current friends' uh, wedding last year. They're coming to our wedding next year. Um, And I think part of it is because queer circles, depending on where you live, can be kind of small and intersecting. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, well, we're going to see each other all the time and we probably have a lot of friends in common. Um, But also, I think it's just a different 
um, sort of radical way that queer people often approach relationships where like sex doesn't have to mean love and love doesn't have to mean sex and jealousy doesn't have to be the defining emotion that happens when you see a lover or an ex-lover with someone else. And you, that you don't have to throw out a good relationship and a good person just because mm. it didn't work for mm-hmm. you guys to be dating. And not only just remaining friends with exes, but like having hookups turn into friends. That has been a really rich and exciting part of my queer life and chosen family. Yeah. And so I think something else that I'd argue has long been essential to marginalized groups like queer people um, is this ability to identify across time and beyond our own lived experiences. And so uh, specifically, I'm wondering if y'all have any intergenerational dynamics in y'all's chosen families yeah i i this is this is one of my favorite things about being queer actually is that like i I, you know i i feel like maybe we should have done like a straight studies in this show because i I feel like we're speaking a lot on on behalf of straight people which maybe we shouldn't but i do i think it is pretty rare from what i can tell to have like how would i put it like equal friendships with people much older or younger than you in that world. And in in my world, uh, it's not very, it's not uncommon at all. I mean, that's not to say there's not ageism and, you know, certainly in the gay male community, but I think just as often there, there are friendships across that. And I mean, one of the most important friendships in my life is with a gay guy, uh, Charles, who's much, you know, he's, I guess, probably 30 years older than me, roughly. And, you know, we met in a gay bar and he's, I was actually uh, doing, uh, I was writing about this gay bar at the time. So I had my little reporter's notebook out and he is a journalist as well. And he came over and said, oh, what are you, what are you writing? Uh, And we struck up a conversation and became really fast friends after that. And he and his partner have become, you know, I, I think we have dinner with them or do something with them at least once every two weeks. And it's like, I mean, it feels very much, I mean, to the, very much like family to the point that uh, this person got ordained online to officiate the wedding ceremony for my par- uh, one of my partners and I. Oh, wow. And so, you know, that, that relationship across decades uh, of, in terms of age has been really central to, to my, to my life. And, you know, I, I don't really, I mean, the age is there because we've lived through different, you know, different histories, and that that's actually enriches the relationship because we get to hear about the past as as a queer person that he experienced. But at the same time, it doesn't really feel like anything at all. It feels like we're, you know, we're we're brothers or whatever. And that the particular magic of that uh, that is is really special to me. And I, I don't know that I even totally understand it, but it but it feels uh, unique and and worth you know really. Uh, preserving. I'm just going to pop in here and you can cut me out because I know I'm not officially part of this segment, but something that strikes me, so I would say I'm kind of in the role of the older person in, for, for some people. And my partner who is older than me um, you know, also has that role. And it's interesting to me, I wonder sometimes if it if that kind of intergenerational friendship will disappear or be less present in our community as as we kind of know more about the world as we know more about strangers as we just kind of have this ability to learn things about people that we're not in the same room as more because I think one of the big things that has been certainly for lesbians I think so my partner and I've been together for like 21 years and I think for many younger people there's this idea of like modeling a long-term relationship Mm. and like seeing that 
oh my goodness, like a lesbian relationship can, you know, can last. And which, of course, lesbians are famous for having very long relationships. But um, I still have very much experienced that feeling of like, oh, I'm looking at this and I'm seeing this and it's important to see it. And I wonder if it'll go away as there are more, as maybe as marriage makes a difference, like where where Mm. you don't have to contend much less with like hiding relationships and and you know being out is less remarkable if they will disappear i wonder i hope not i also feel a sense of kinship and responsibility almost for younger queer people who i see out in the world like we recently had a lesbian intern who was like trying to find her way in a new city and a new industry and i was like i don't haven't even met that person but like i'm going to make a point to visit them and like take them out for a meal and stuff because i know that it can be alienating sometimes trying to navigate a new queer culture in a new city or an industry as a, an openly queer person who's kind of trying to balance how much to make that identity part of their life or you know part of their work personality um and i think that's part of chosen family too for me is seeing other queer people and take and investing in their well-being even if you're you're not already friends. Yeah, like I for me it's it's similar in that I feel this sense of queer cultural heritage. Um and so, you know, June to your point, I you know, this is one reason I would hope that this dynamic doesn't fade is because there is this sort of responsibility, I think or at least I feel to know what has happened before. I think it's often very easy to you know, for people our age to forget how much has happened in such little time. Um, You know, so if I were to ask, you know, a gay, a middle-aged gay man, you know, tell me about the 80s, um, that response would probably be radically different than if I were to ask my father, like, tell me about the 80s. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, this sort of protecting this knowledge is also important. And for me, that's one reason I, I don't want this to fade. There's a sense that when you're, when I'm having a conversation with, um, somebody who's older um, and queer, you know, it's not just a conversation with that person, but it also feels like a sort of conversation between or communion between, you know, the present and the really not so distant at all past and just how radically different these two, these periods are. But how much is still relevant? You know, mm-hmm. I I think about that a lot in terms of struggles for women's rights, too. You know, there's a lot of people talking about like, oh, the younger generation doesn't realize how hard it was before Roe v. Wade. Hmm. Well, now they're getting a little sense Mm -hmm. of what it might be Mm -hmm. like or what it might have been like. And I, as we'll talk about in our (laughs) our legal segment, there still are a lot of legal challenges for LGBTQ rights and LGBTQ families. So yeah, I think that that those close relationships have practical purposes too uh, in terms of organizing for rights. Let me, I want to ask like a, a, a slightly devil's advocate question, I guess. Um, do we want, like, is it preferable that people did, would not have to look beyond their biological families in the future? Um, like, would it, would it be better? Like, like we were talking about how chosen family sort of emerges, at least originally out of, you know, being rejected by our families or not feeling like at least at the very least not feeling like we can get everything we need from them. Um, And I think June was sort of speaking to this a bit like if this if the dynamic uh, improves and like you, you know, 
perhaps you don't need any of that anymore. Like, is that something we should want or do, or should we, like, I'm feeling very selfish about it. And I feel like that's almost retrograde somehow. It's like, I want it to stay the way it is so that everybody has to like seek out, you know, these, these uh, unique groups of people to, to have as family. But maybe that's, maybe that's like wrong. I don't know. Well, I kind of think of it, you know, the difference between something being born out of need and born out of want or desire. And Mm -hmm. so I think, you know, it would be nice and preferable and ideal if people, you know, if queer people could create their chosen families, not out of necessity, but because it's something where, you know, they want they want this part of um, their own socialization, social socialization experiences. You know, I remember talking to a friend about this before and how sometimes it's just easier to talk to people who share certain identity traits. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this sort of this weight that's lifted because it's like, oh, not everything has to, you know, become a sort of quote unquote teachable moment sort of thing. You don't have to translate. Um, Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) Um, So, you know, the idea of, you know, queer people need queer friends, like women need women friends and, you know, black people need black friends. You know, I I think there's a lot of value and, you know, it's not something that's doesn't have to be born out of necessity, but does add a lot of uh, sort of texture and comfort. And and I think that I personally would like for these things to continue to be embraced in those ways uh, in those ways and not have it necessarily be sort of exclusionary or anything like that. It also strikes me that this is something that actually rather than we should lose because we don't need it anymore is that wouldn't it be great if straight people had it more? Mm, I mean, mm. the richness, the benefits, the fun, the just all all of the gifts of intergenerational friendships, which I'm not suggesting that like no straight person has ever had, right. but that it, it does appear to be much less part of life. And whatever the reasons, whatever the causes that it became more of a thing in queer life, it's really wonderful. And and it's it's not that we you know, if 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 we are going to be more like straight people in the future in terms of our socialization, in terms of like what the kind of the hurdles that we face, hopefully, you know, I don't not exactly that they would learn something from us, but that something would change in the overall picture of heterosexual America or heterosexual life would seems like a, a positive thing to me. Mm. And there's one thing that I think won't change, which is that I think it's a lot easier to meet people and make friends as a queer person in a new place because there are already places sort of set out for you to go where a straight person would be like, cool, I'll go to a random bar, you know, <laughs> or like, no, who, who who will want to talk to me? And if you're a queer person, I mean, like, goddess willing, queer spaces will still exist even when homophobia is a thing of the past. But uh, I think the... One thing that has really driven home the concept of queer family to me has been the hominess, the at-homeness, I feel, when I enter a gay bar in another country mm-hmm. or in another city where I've never been and feeling like I could strike up a conversation with someone and it wouldn't be weird mm-hmm. because that's the culture in a lot of these places and we already kind of have something in common. Um, and I don't think that that will I think that that will always be something that people who choose to associate with other queer people will always be able to embrace. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., 
on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. So on that note, Christina, you mentioned, um, you know, that we're going to be talking about the legal dimensions of queer partnerships and families. So I'm wondering if you could lead us in our conversation with Mark Joseph Stern on just that. Mm -hmm. So families like chosen families don't need to be bound by blood or by legal documents to be real. But establishing legal rights and protections for LGBTQ families has been a really important thrust of gay and trans rights movements. So our next segment is about the process of making families with our bodies. Bodies and with the law. Here's one story of a queer family that created itself in a non traditional way. Uh, I'm Lillian Faderman, and uh, I'm a writer of uh, lesbian and LGBTQ history, and I was an academic for about 40 years. I'm Phyllis Irwin, and I'm also a recovering academic, and of course, I've been Lillian's partner since the early 1970s. We have been fighting for legal rights since the early 1980s. Um, In 1975, our son was born. I uh, carried him. Uh, He was born through donor insemination. I traveled a lot um, after my book, Surpassing the Love of Men, came out in 1981. And We always worried about that. First of all, if anything happened to me, Phyllis would have no legal claim to him because we weren't permitted to form any sort of legal relationship. And then if I was gone uh, and he had to go to the doctor, Phyllis would have a problem taking him to the doctors. So we dealt with that because I, I would write, notes saying I was traveling and uh, this is Phyllis Irwin and she's authorized to take my son to the doctor. But that was awkward and aggravating too. And so we we had an idea in uh, 1982, uh, and that is that we discovered that in the state of California, you could have an adult adoption as long as there was a 10-year difference between the two adults. Well, Phyllis is 11 years older than I am, and that's what we did. Um, And so when Phyllis had to take our son to the doctor, for instance, she could introduce herself as his grandmother. And it made my family, my mother and father, very happy because my father particularly was so fond of Avram, our son, and so that meant that he really then had a legal tie to Avram. And that worked very well uh, while he was growing up. 
And then in California in the year 2000, we were permitted to have legal domestic partnerships. And so that's what we did. We um, had a domestic partnership. And then in 2008, same-sex couples were permitted in California to get married. That lasted all of six months. The voters decided that they um, would stop same-sex marriage, and 18,000 couples were uh, allowed to keep their marriage, uh, those who had married between June and early November, but no more no other same-sex couples could marry. In any case, um, Phyllis was my mother. Uh, she was my domestic partner. And then in 2008, she was uh, also my spouse. We were interviewed in 2015 by the New York Times uh, about our unusual legal ties. And the interviewer asked us, when we undid our adoption, uh, did we undo the adoption before we got married? And I said, no, we had actually consulted a California lawyer who told us as long as there wasn't consanguinity, uh, it was okay to get married. And so uh, we kept that adoption from 1982. We got married in 2000 eight and thought that everything was all right. And the interviewer said, oh, I don't think that's true. You better look into it. <laughs> and then just coincidentally, right after the uh, New York Times article came out, I was speaking at the public library, the main uh, public library in Los Angeles, and a lawyer that I had met came up to me afterwards and said, you know, all the gay lawyers are talking about this. You guys are in trouble. You have to undo the adoption and get married again. And she offered to undo the adoption for us. She did. And we got married again <laughs> in 2015. So I think we have more legal ties than anyone on the planet. <laughs> oh, oh, there's, there's, there's more. Can we tell you more? <laughs> well, yes, because I think this is important, that after we uh, undid the adoption, although we were able to get married again, this severed my legal connection to Avram, and he was upset. He was very upset, and he got on the phone, and he says, he calls me Mama Phyllis. He says, you have always been my other mother. He says, now you have to adopt me. And by this time, this was possible. So we filed all the papers. Uh, I did, and uh, he and his whole family came to the court in Fresno, and to me, this was the truly moving experience. And I think even the judge, it was a woman judge, and I think we were all teary. I mean, this just was so important to me to know that Avram felt so strongly about our relationship that he wanted it to be legal, as well as all the emotional ties that we'd always had. And so he was, I think he... Was he 40 or 40? He was either 40 or 41. I don't remember. But And then his son, was, uh, who is now 12, was about 9 or 10. The other things were just kind of, okay, you know, this is nice. But this, this, really, this really touched me deep down. So to help us talk through the legal landscape for LGBTQ families, we have brought in someone who we've been wanting to include 
on this Kiki for a long time, Slate staff writer and lawyer Mark Joseph Stern. Welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I appreciate your <laughs> shout-out to my trademark rainbow headband uh, last episode. <laughs> it was a real joy. So just to start off, how much has the legal landscape changed for queer families over the past couple of years? Oh, dramatically so since about 2013. So for a very long time, uh, as you know, same-sex couples, LGBTQ couples, were legal strangers under the law, and in many states they could not even jointly adopt a child, right? Even after states began legalizing marriage equality, these couples were still not recognized as married by the federal government, and so they were denied a ton of rights Uh, and benefits under the law for many years. So that changed in 2013 when the Supreme Court struck down the federal ban on same-sex marriage. And then, of course, in 2015, when the Supreme Court struck down uh, every state's ban on same-sex marriage, LGBTQ couples could lawfully wed. uh, And so it became much easier to be a gay family, an LGBTQ family, uh, without running into legal roadblocks. But some definitely still remain in, in a number of states. And so it's not like we are in the panacea of equality. There are absolutely still issues, particularly if you live in a red state. One thing that really surprised me when I when my friends started having kids and I was talking to them about, you know, how they're getting legal protections for their families was that even in D.C., which, you know, has had LGBTQ, like, equal marriage for a long time and and a bunch of protections for queer people that other states don't have or that states don't have since we're not a state. Even here, my friends who are married, even a couple who, like, they're both biologically involved in their child's birth. It was one of their eggs in the other one's body. They still had to go to court to testify that the person who didn't physically birth the child was their child's parent. Why when, you know, marriage is legal and, and these two people are married, do they still have to go through that kind of insulting process that a straight couple doesn't have to go through when they're both biologically related to their child? Yeah, that's a horrible story. Uh, How long ago did that happen? This kid is three, so it must have been 2015. Okay, so the good news here is that D.C. used to have pretty much the worst laws in the country with regard to surrogacy and assisted reproductive therapy and non-traditional childbirth. Uh, It was actually criminal to enter into a surrogacy contract for many decades in D.C. Uh, But just last year, D.C. revolutionized all of its laws on this matter, and now we are really the leader in terms of non-traditional reproduction. All of our laws are in line with best practices laid out by uh, LGBTQ advocacy groups. So I strongly suspect that your friends would not have to go through that process. In fact, I'm certain of it. And so today, what happens in states that are progressive on these issues, so places like D.C. uh, and California uh, and Nevada actually also has really good laws here, uh, as well as most of the Northeast, is that you can obtain a pre-birth order for your child. And so what you do is before the child is actually 
actually birthed. Both of the legal parents can go to court and very, very easily just declare that they are married, that they are the parents of this child, uh, and then the court will basically issue a correct birth certificate upon the child's birth so that the parents do not have to go through this painful legal process. So that is the case in a lot of progressive states now, but not every progressive state. So New York still has really backwards laws with regard to non-traditional reproduction and surrogacy. Uh, So does Washington state, actually. And they are down there with places like Louisiana uh, and Michigan that have uh, Republican legislatures that have restricted all this stuff. So that's what I say when I mean that the map matters in terms of LGBTQ parenting and families. You know, the Supreme Court actually ruled a year after that marriage equality decision that states do have to list same-sex parents on their children's birth certificate, but it did not prevent states from putting up certain roadblocks there, so long as they theoretically apply to straight couples too. And so we are still sort of fighting for true equal parenting rights in this country. In places like Arizona, we just recently won a state Supreme Court decision that required absolute gender-neutral equal parenting rights under state law. So this is a work in progress, and unfortunately in a number of places, People like your, your friends are still going to have to go through the, that painful process if they want to be recognized as parents under the law. Mark, with the sort of nature of the judiciary changing under the Trump administration, both at the Supreme Court level and, and lower, what's the outlook for that? You, you sort of described like a, a push forward and like an improvement on this, but aren't we facing some threats of rollbacks or, or you know, uh, worsening situations in different states? Yeah, I mean, the issue, of course, uh, is that the Justice who protected same-sex couples, uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy, stepped down over the summer and has been replaced with Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Um, Kavanaugh rude, is, extremely uh, rude. Yeah, I know. I'm very sorry. Uh, I, I don't even want to say justice, but that's how it is. Put an asterisk next to his next to his <laughs> title if you'd like. You know, Kavanaugh has not issued any rulings with regard to gay rights, but he is very unlikely to be as progressive on this issue as Kennedy was. And so a lot of people you you heard during these confirmations saying, well, no matter what happens, Obergefell is safe, right? The decision protecting same-sex marriage is safe. I don't necessarily think that's true because Obergefell spoke in broad terms uh, about the constellation of benefits that same-sex couples must receive under the Constitution true equality, right? So not just a certificate, but all of the benefits that come from the state with that certificate, like if you're a state employee, your spouse gets to receive health care. If you are a same-sex parent, your child gets to be your you know, legal child. Uh, that kind of stuff still has to be cleaned up in the courts in a number of states, and we've seen states fight it. So Texas is fighting uh, government employees' right to have their spouse on their health care if their spouse is gay. It was uh, the state of Arkansas that tried to prevent same-sex couples from being listed as parents on their children's birth certificate if they conceived via artificial insemination, even though straight couples can do so. And so we relied on the courts, again, to, to say, no, Obergefell meant what it said. But unfortunately, the state courts, which are often elected in these states, bend to the will of homo 
homophobes. And so uh, in both Texas and Arkansas, we saw state courts essentially defy Obergefell. Uh, and so I worry that, you know, even if the Supreme Court doesn't get involved again, uh, it could sort of uh, swat down these cases and say, well, we're not going to consider that and allow states to chip away at these rights. And so that means that the map would matter even more. You know, if you live in California, you're going to be fine. But if you live in Louisiana, you might see a hostile state try to roll back your rights uh, and you'd no longer have Justice Kennedy on the court ready to say absolutely not. So one thing that I admittedly didn't know much about, but I'm now totally fascinated with, is uh, same-sex adoption. And we just heard from Lillian Faderman about her own story with uh, same-sex spousal adoption. And so I'm curious, Mark, if you could talk a little bit about like what is the legacy of that today. Um, I know that some people are facing problems getting that relationship vacated or not relationship, but getting that sort of legal engagement with it vacated so that they can uh, enter into a same-sex marriage. But I'm just wondering if you could comment a little bit on what, what that looks like today. So this was something that happened in the past before uh, same-sex couples could marry or even enter into domestic partnerships, right, uh, or civil unions. You saw one spouse, we would call them spouses today, essentially adopt the other one uh, under the law and say, this is my formal child. Uh, and so that way, there was an existing legal relationship between the two that ensured that, for instance, if one of them died, that the other would inherit their estate, uh, would be able to visit them in the hospital if they were sick, that they would have the rights associated with a family relationship. It was not super common, but it definitely happened. Uh, and there are definitely people alive today who underwent that process. And the issue is that dissolving a legal parent-child relationship uh, is much, much harder than dissolving a marriage. It's uh, hard on purpose, right? We generally don't want parents to be formally disowning their children under the law. And so these couples who are actually couples, not true parents and children, they are caught in this trap where they, they did what they could at the time that was best for them. Now, not only can they not dissolve their relationship, but of course they can't marry each other because a parent can't marry their child. So we've seen a, a different reaction uh, in state courts with regard to these relationships. Some have been sympathetic to the problem and recognized that this was never really a traditional kind of adoption. Others have said, uh, you know, our hands are tied. We're just doing what we have to do under the law. But it's been a real issue uh, and I think very distressing because uh, it doesn't seem fair, right? It, it seems like these couples should get a free pass because they were only doing what they had to do. But uh, alas, not all of them are able to dissolve that relationship. And so they're stuck being parents and children when what they'd really like to do is just get married. So keeping on the sort of theme of these queer, like legal workarounds, essentially, um, I wonder if you could comment on the status of families that are sort of different from the typical couple. You know, we have a lot of poly families and sort of collective arrangements. And, you know, I know I have a, a friend who has attempted to set up like an LLC for his for he and his partners. Right. Um, and that's been difficult. And I, I, um, I'm not sure how easy that would be for everybody. But I'm wondering if there are like like frontier cases like that that are stretching what the law can do for queer family arrangements that you can talk about. 
Yeah, so of course it's it's kind of funny because when when same-sex marriage was sort of on the march, we saw lots of conservatives saying, well, what's to stop three people from marrying or four people <laughs> from marrying? And now we have a, a genuine issue of committed poly uh, trios or, or even more individuals in a relationship who want legal recognition and are struggling to obtain it. Marriage uh, would seem to be off the table for them. It is true that throughout all of U.S. history, uh, marriage has been between two individuals. Stretching marriage to three individuals is not something that the courts would undertake. I think there's um, there's not a clear equal protection issue there unless the courts found that being polyamorous is kind of protected status. Mm-hmm. And so it would have to be done legislatively. Uh, and we haven't seen the kind of groundwork being laid or, or the grassroots organization to allow recognition of polyamorous couples the way that we did for same-sex couples. There doesn't seem to be that kind of legislative push. And so in the meantime, you know, there are a few different options. So the, the first is definitely to try to create a kind of LLC, which sounds silly, but under the new Republican tax bill, you'll, you'll save money anyway, so why not try it? Uh, yeah, you can, you can basically set up like a corporation that, that's you and your partners, and that way you have legal recognition under the law and you get various financial benefits. Uh, and and do you have to break. prove that you're actually a business? Like, do you have to nominally, like, sell a few things on Etsy or something like that? <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No, you oh, can, wow. I mean, you can just set yourself up as a pass-through corporation if you want to work around tax law. It's, it's, uh, anything can be done with a good tax lawyer, essentially. So, no, you don't, you don't have to create, like, crafted candles and sell them on Etsy <laughs> uh, in order should. to be an LLC. Yeah, poly-themed poly candles. Um, and by the way, this was something that some same-sex couples did attempt to do with varying success before marriage equality. So it, it's nothing new. The, the other thing, and I think this is probably the better route, is to just hire a really good lawyer who can set up your entire sort of legal life, all of your benefits, uh, your estates, uh, in a way that sort of uh, interlocks so that uh, if one individual dies or gets ill, uh, that the other two individuals will have various rights, will be recognized as, in, as some capacity as partners. Now, obviously, if there's a marriage and then a third partner, unfortunately, for poly couples who want absolute uh, egalitarianism, the married partner, the spouse, is always going to have legal precedence over, over the third partner. And so that's one issue that could potentially be addressed legislatively uh, if we're getting really ambitious here in favor of poly rights. Uh, and hey, why not, right? But we just aren't really there yet with poly couples. I think that what we need to do is push progressive states to say what is a reasonable compromise here where if two people who are married are in a relationship with a third person, they can ensure that that third person isn't a stranger under the law. We're not necessarily pushing for plural marriage, as it's called, but what could we do to save them the time and money of having to hire an expensive lawyer who can grant this this third person all these contractual rights? Can we simplify that process through state law? I have one more question. I know one of the great things about uh, marriage equality is that it has made it a lot easier for queer couples with mixed immigration status to get citizenship for all members of their relationship. Do queer couples with mixed immigration status have anything to fear under the Trump administration? <laughs> I guess, I mean, the obvious answer is yes, but I wonder what specific things mm-hmm. they might have to fear, even if, you know, equal marriage remains law. 
The only reason that same-sex couples can uh, sponsor each other's immigration, a green card, right, or permanent residency or citizenship is because of that 2013 decision in the United States versus Windsor, in which the Supreme Court struck down the federal ban on recognizing same-sex marriages. That opened the door to immigration sponsorships uh, among same-sex couples. It is absolutely possible that the Trump administration could try to restrict or end that and say, you know, I, I guess it could, it could say, look, we're taking a very technical, narrow reading of this decision, and unless and until Congress amends the immigration laws, we're not going to read Windsor as affecting them, and we're going to try to keep same-sex immigrants out of the country. Um, that would be a test case. That's clearly unconstitutional. It's not really plausible under Windsor, but it's something the administration could try. It has tried worse and crazier things. And that would, of course, throw lots of same-sex couples into legal limbo. It would throw their immigration statuses into doubt. So that's something that, I, you know, I keep, I keep saying this. I, I don't know if anyone's listening, but when and if Democrats really do regain control of the federal government, they need to formally repeal DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, which was the, the federal ban on same-sex marriage. They need to wipe it off the books. Right now it's on the books, but it's just inoperative, right, because the Supreme Court blocked it. They need to just take it down, take it off the books, and say expressly that the federal government will recognize in all circumstances a lawful same-sex marriage. Because in, until Democrats do that, there's always a chance that a malicious and bigoted administration like this one could try to work around or limit the scope of the decision. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Mark. And I just want to say, on behalf of all of us here at Outward, mazel tov on your own recent marriage. Thank you so much. I am so excited to join my partner's federal health insurance plan. That is one of those stars in the constellation of benefits that I cannot wait to seize for myself. That's the dream. Awesome. Well, we hope you join us again sometime soon. Thanks so much for having me on. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. So that's just about it for Outward this week. But before we go, we'd like to send you off with your monthly gay agenda. In sticking with our theme, we'll each talk about something that showed us the possibility of queer family. Brian, what is your agenda item? So um, this uh, film, actually, when you when we uh, posed the possibility of queer family as the sort of prompt, I, uh, I, I started thinking about like early in my life. But I actually think... The one uh, that came to mind more strongly uh, happened only last year, and it's the movie uh, BPM. Uh, which is beats, I love that movie. Beats per minute. Yeah, it's if if you haven't seen it, it's a a French movie uh, about ACT UP in Paris in the early '90s, I believe. I think it was a little later than ACT UP here, but um, in the early '90s, it's about a group of activists doing their activism, but also their love lives and 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 just dealing with what it was like to be in the middle of the AIDS crisis in Paris at that moment. And I think it uh, shows the possibility or the the richness of queer family in a couple ways. It's you know it, it gets at the kind of sexual uh, and friendship networks that we were talking about before very beautifully. It also brings in sort of like the political element of queer family, which is not something that we've 
talked about necessarily on the show yet, but um, you know, often I think queer people by necessity have have a shared politics uh, just because of, of oppression and sort of needing to. Not not all do, of course, but I think it's it's pretty common, and it certainly was earlier in history, um, and that's certainly at play. Um, but there's also just I don't want to spoil the film, but um, at the end there's this beautiful moment where a person's queer fa- in a moment of sort of crisis, a person's queer family and their biological family actually come into contact and sort of create and, and act together on this per- person's behalf in a really powerful way. Um, that that is, I think, probably the most. Uh, eloquent representation of 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 what that can look like that I've ever seen. So I would uh, highly recommend that movie if people haven't seen it. Yeah, I just got chills thinking about that scene. I second that recommendation highly. Yeah, and that that scene. I think one of my favorite scenes is where they're uh, protesting, and in the background you can hear um, Bronski beat Small Town Boys mm-hmm. starting to play, and then it transitions to all of them like dancing at a nightclub. And yeah, like Brian shows that sort of that mingling of politics, politics and social life and yeah. activism and celebration. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah exactly. Mm-hmm. Christina, what do you have? I'd like to recommend a book by Michelle T called Valencia. Um, so Michelle T is a queer writer, a really formative uh, role model for me in both queerness and uh, writing. Uh, Valencia is a memoir that she published in the year 2000 about her crew of punk ass lesbians and queers in San Francisco in the 90s. I think she was in her mid 20s when she wrote it, and I was in my mid 20s when I read it. And it was a brilliant depiction of her queer family that captures the way queer people rely on each other, the complications and, and, and incestuousness and sort of shifting roles that queer people play within their chosen family and uh, how family-like bonds can form between people, especially uh, if and when your biological family can't understand what it is to be gay. And there are all these sort of dirty anti-capitalist queers who steal from bars and and get spontaneous tattoos and do amateur porn. And I was like, that's what my life's going to be like. And of course it's not. But it is a really charming read. Uh, Michelle T is a really vivid writer. And um, it was a formative picture of queer family for me that I, I still return to. Mm. Nice. Uh, so I feel like we'd be remiss not to mention drag families mm, in this mm-hmm. segment yes. about um, families and uh, uh, how we build our families. And so my gay agenda item is the 1995 cult comedy, Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, mm. Julie Newmar. Has anyone seen it? I yes. Haven't. Oh, lo- love it. Yes, absolutely. So uh, the gist is, you know, it follows three New York drag queens. Um, so it has... Uh, Patrick Swayze is play, playing um, somebody named Vita Boem, Wesley Snipes as Nagzima Jackson, and John Leguizamo as Chichi Rodriguez. Um, and so they're on this road trip to Hollywood to participate in the um, in this huge, big drag competition. Um, and so I first saw the movie when I was six or seven, something like that. I remember my older sister watching it. Um, and it was absolutely before I knew what drag even is. Um, but I remember loving the opening scene, uh, scene where, uh, the three or the, the, a lot of the characters are, you know, they're putting on their drag. There, there's this beautiful transformation. And in the background, you're hearing, um, this fantastic, uh, salt and pepper song. Um, but to see, you know, these very hyper masculine men, right? Like Patrick Swayze, Wesley Snipes, um, getting into drag in a very 
what felt what feels genuine and empathetic um, way was just really heartwarming, even if I didn't totally understand everything that was going on at the time. Um, but at the same time, it's also, you know, it's a movie about, you know, a marginalized group of people closing ranks as they run up against all kinds of discrimination, which I think is a beautiful thing for anyone, but was especially so for my younger closet itself. So my recommendation to Wong Fu, it's a great movie. You'll love it. Yeah, it's that that movie. Um, I, I rewatched it recently, being a little scared that it might not hold up. But give it, you know, it is. I think mm-hmm. all the actors are why well, all the actors are straight, right? Am I right? Yeah. Yes. All the actors are straight, and so you know, it could have. I I had seen it young when I was younger as well, and then was like, oh goodness, maybe it's going to read mm-hmm. as like making fun, or but it really doesn't. It it yeah, really yeah. it really is like you said, empathetic and and uh, yeah, so totally second that recommendation. It's a great great film. All right, so that's it for Outward this month. Please send us your feedback, topic ideas, and uh, advice questions to outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook and Twitter at Slate Outward. Thank you to Danielle Hewitt, who provided production assistance for this episode. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. Slate Podcast Senior Managing Producer Juden Thomas is the turducken of our hearts. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app, tell your friends about it, and rate and review the show so others can find it. We'll be back in your feeds on December 19th with an episode on queer spirituality. Until then, happy gratitude day to my co-host Brandon and Christina. Bye, Brian. I'm so grateful for you. Till next time, you guys. Ciao for now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.